Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content, joined, as I often am, by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. So we have a sponsored episode today from the fine folks at Do It, and we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, hallucinations. Not the kind of hallucinations I had in college, the kind of hallucinations that are top of mind these days for folks who are working in technology and specifically trying to take advantage of some of the cutting edge work that's happening in AI. So yeah, I would love to first off, welcome our guest to the program, Sasha Hare. Sasha, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ryan. Pleasure to be in the podcast today. So for folks who are listening, just tell them a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the world of software and technology? Yeah, I, I started my career working for um, the agency part of IBM quite a long, long time. And six, approximately six years ago, my wife um, and I decided to make a bold move and we quitted our jobs back there and moved to Berlin. And the decision was not just this geographical relocation, it's where I made the decision to fully go into machine learning. And I remember around that time, it was when where, where TensorFlow was uh, making the first waves in the industry mm. and with the version one of TensorFlow uh, releasing approximately six years ago. And since then, I worked with over 200, 240 companies um, solving the, the most challenging and sometimes also boring machine learning topics. And for the past few years, I'm now working at Doit. So yeah, for folks who are listening, explain Doit because it has an interesting sort of business model. Doit is a... By heart, we are an engineering organization. We help companies on the cloud with all topics around infrastructure, data, and machine learning. The company itself is over a decade old already, so quite some time. We have over 3,000 customers, and I see us as an extension for our customers. We're an extension for their teams, and we offer training, we offer support, and we offer all-around technical guidance, uh, guidance on the cloud, both on a high level, but also on, on really deep dive into the topics. And in addition to our people and those great engineering expertise, we also have a Do It console where you get cloud analytics for all the major clouds, anomaly detection. That's the benefit the, the customers get. And the interesting part that I, you know, you were explaining was that like the customer doesn't pay you, right? Like the cloud providers pay you to help the customer kind of get more out of their cloud. Exactly. We, we like to say we do that at no cost for our customers, which is true. So the customers don't have to pay anything. And we have a really short three-page contract and you can leave us at any time. So it's, it's really, it's a no-brainer to join us. So, you know, the hot topic in machine learning and AI today is, is the uh, large language models. And obviously, we'll talk about the hallucinations. So how do the language models work in brief and why do hallucinations happen? Yeah, so hallucinations are is when the model makes up stuff that either doesn't make sense or match the, doesn't match the information it was given. And in such cases, the answer sound plausible, but they are simply simply incorrect. And I don't like the term hallucinations because I think we can put it into a more straightforward way and say the, the model is just wrong. That's, that's how it is. There is no such thing as hallucinations for flash language models. They are simply wrong. Before we can discuss on how hallucinations um, appear, I think we need to differentiate between two different ways of hallucinations. The first one are actually made-up answers, so answering on really wrong information. And the second one is answering based on, on outdated data. The, or the later one on outdated data, it's easy to fix. You can just train on more, more up-to-date data or integrate more up-to-date data. But the, the made-up answers, this is where, where the issue really starts. 
So, yeah, I mean, my sort of, you know, impression of how the large language models work is they've been trained to predict, you know, the next word in the sentence, the next sentence in a paragraph. They predict the next token and they get better and better at that. And over time, as they've worked with bigger and bigger, you know, like data sets of language and, you know, been fine tuned, they come to feel like they have, you know, some aptitude of reasoning and, you know, that they're, they're sort of able to use language in the way a person would to, to work through ideas and give you interesting answers. But to your point, at a certain level, all they're doing is sort of statistically predicting what will come next. So if you say, hey, you know, write me a, a lawyer's brief about, you know, the first time we landed on Mars and, you know, the seven laws that were established, it will write that for you. It's not going to say that never happened. What are, you know, I guess some ways that, you know, you could mediate that one, as you said, obviously keep the, you know, context that it's working from up to date. The other would be, you know, give it some rules through prompts that sort of instruct it. If you don't see that, you know, the answer within the context I've given you, let me know. But, you know, those sort of rely on two different things. There's the inference it's making off the data, and then there's, you know, the structure of the prompting. So maybe let's start with, you know, the the inference part. Explain to folks a little bit from your perspective how it works and how you might set, you know, a model up for success. Yeah, as I said, those large language models, they usually don't say, I don't know when they're unsure. So they give you the right. most likely, most likely answer. That's, that's, as I said, it's because they are operating on tokens and influenced by the sequence of tokens, which came before they give you the, the next most probable um, tokens. And that's, that's the crux of those large language models because they are purely relying on patterns. And there's um, one easy way to solve this on uh, inference on the prediction time. It's called um, document retrieval. And as the name suggests, it involves retrieving relevant documents um, or information from a database before the model actually generates the response. And this strategy helps in, it's called grounding the model's response in actual factual information. And this can significantly reduce or even completely avoid um, hallucinations. So how do you get that into a, a large language model? I mean, the large language models have just been, like Ben said, you know, statistically predicting the next word, sentence, etc. How do you get them to pull a full document instead? Yeah, so there are two ways. As I said, the first one is document retrieval and the second one is fine tuning. But I would, would like to focus on a document retrieval. Mm-hmm. When the large language model receives a, a prompt, we take the document retrieval system and search against the database only the relevant documents which which are useful useful for answering our questions. And we give the documents back from, from a vector database and provide our model with this context. So the, the context of the documents are the large language model's input. And combined with um, intelligent, good prompt engineering, we can instruct the model to only use the documents we provided. So it's not mm-hmm. relying on the information it learned. Instead, we say only use the documents which we give to you. And if you don't have the answer, then please tell us you don't have the answer. So we combine right. actual factual information with prompt engineering. Are you uh, embedding um, the semantic vectors in those documents as a whole, or is it uh, some other process? Exactly. You're taking the documents, for example, some knowledge base in your company, you create an embedding out of it. Then you take the same embedding model, and you also take the embedding based on your questions. And because it's the same embedding model, the question which are um, correlating to your documents are closed in this multidimensional embedding space. And that's how we get the relevant documents for our question back. So Sasha, just for folks who are listening who may not be quite as conversant, you know, what's really interesting and we're seeing a lot of is folks are moving from 
this sort of keyword lexical search to semantic search in a vector database. And as you point out, you know, if you did that with some of the documents, the knowledge base of a company, you can, you know, put those things in sort of approximate space. But can you explain to folks a little bit about how a vector database works and yeah, how you might set up an embedding through, for example, like do it and a cloud vendor? Yeah, so you you take a text and you take the embedding model and you get a re- representation of what the model learned based on, on what it was trained on. So you get a number, a vector representation of the information represented mm-hmm. in this large embedding space. And it's stored in a, in a vector database and you get some nice algorithms to properly get the data out of it. So you're taking two embeddings, the data, the document embedding and the question embedding and do some similarity calculation based on top of that. It could be so cosinus similarity or dot similarity. It depends a little bit on the model you're using. And you uh, are from the camp that feels that, you know, these models are working purely statistically. You know, I'm a big fan of the Microsoft paper, uh, Sparks of AGI, and I would say Ryan is more in your camp, but you know that somehow in the process of understanding the world through bigger and bigger sets of language and more and more fine tuning, they've come away with the ability to have some sort of reasoning, a little bit of theory of mind, you know, a few other little tricks that make them seem more human that gives them, you know, sort of like a psychological aspect. Now, when you say through, you know, clever prompt engineering, you can say, Hey, only pay attention to this. And if you don't know the answer, you know, tell us that. How does a model know if it doesn't know the answer, for example? Like, that's not something where it's predicting the next token. It has to reason about, you know, whether or not it has the proper, you know, knowledge to provide an answer to you. I, I also read about this. I also read the paper, and it's quite interesting. And he also showcases some of the issues where he still thinks we are not there yet, right? Because uh, even if we research paper highlights this, we are still not, not fully there yet. And... I agree with you. It's, it's, it can be, it feels like magic, right? If you, if you instruct something and you get the right answers back or sometimes the wrong answers. But in the end, it's, it's all token based. And if you, if you all, if you already provide the context and there is no, no probability for the next token to be the next good one, right? It's all based on probabilities. If the probability is too low, there is no good next token. So that's how, how it works. And also you instruct it. The model right. explicitly to answer you don't know it, and this is also the next token. So when it's it's hallucinating, it's saying you know here's the best sort of guess at what a good token is. Is that correct? Yes. And you can give it sort of an instruction that says like if you see a probability, like if if you don't feel that the probability of guessing the next token is above ninety five percent, then just tell us, and you know we'll walk away from this answer. Yeah, you you can try different ways of telling the model on how it should um, operate. Um, you can tell them to work on probabilities. You can also take it easy and just say, if you don't, if you're unsure of your answer based on the context I provided you, reply, you don't have the answer. Mm-hmm. It might work well, but it, there, there's right. no guarantee, right? It's no hard science right. um, with prompt engineering. It's a little bit of, um, some, some people like it, um, some people hate it. I just call it powerful. See, if the model feels unsure, then <laughs> obviously it's just a statistical parrot, right? Uh, now we got to get therapists for models. Okay. Okay. I'll stop. <laughs> so, the uh, when you when you're adding context, can you add context from from multiple documents at once? Yeah. So there is no no limitation. Of course, there is a limitation. Your token limit. So all the large language models they have a token limit, and um, let it be eight thousand tokens. So um, you need to be inside of this token limits. But we, because we are tre- we are retrieving only the relevant documents, this token context usually um, fits. And if not, you still can do a token count and then you need to do some filtering on the documents. Maybe the documents with the less less likelihood of, of a good document uh, with a similar context to just put away. 
So let's walk through some of like the practical aspects of what like a tech stack might look like here. You know, for a client who's working with Doit, who's on one of, you know, the big three cloud providers from, you know, Google or Microsoft or Amazon, are they using tools from those folks to set all this up? Do they have to go get a separate, you know, vector database like a Pinecone that they need to work with, you know, tools like Langchain to set up the prompting? You know, do they need to go on to Hugging Face and find some open source tooling? Like on a more practical level, you know, how would you go about accomplishing sort of the system we just discussed? Let us let us take it to the to the Google Cloud. A lot of companies now moving from from OpenAI to Google Cloud because of data and and privacy decisions. And Google now released their um, Bard and also Palm model. So Palm is, is the more um, business focused API for for accessing large language models. And you can already use that on Google Cloud. So you have an API where you can send your prompt and you get the answer back. This is the first part. You need your large language model and Right. So with Google, it's like OpenAI, basically you have the same API endpoints. That's that's the first part we need. Got it. So there's an API endpoint to a well-trained, you know, large language model that could be GPT-4 or it could be one of Google's Palm models, as an example. Exactly. And then you need the second part, you need an embedding model. That's also OpenAI provides an embedding model. Google also provides a Palm embedding model. That's the second part where we then take our documents, put it into an embedding and take our question, put it into an embedding. And those embeddings, together with an ID, which refers to the document, are stored in a vector database. And also on the Google Cloud, there's a product that's called a matching engine, but you also mentioned Pinecone. Those are all great products to um, build, out, build out the vector database. You mentioned some of the, uh, the security of the endpoints. I know a lot of, lot of companies are sort of nervous about sending their important documents over endpoints to these, these uh, models. How do you uh, deal with those concerns and work in security? The, the, the customers we are supporting, they are already on the cloud. So they're on AWS, on Google, or on Azure, and they have their data already on the cloud. What they don't like is if, if it moves outside of the cloud, because they usually already have some kind of uh, privacy and security approval internally for, for running Google Cloud. Google Cloud is certified for a lot of different um, security um, certificates. So they are feeling comfortable of having the data already inside of Google Cloud, and they just want to keep it there. If you... If you're capable of using only the Google-related Google, Google related products, um, you are already a great step ahead. And so is there, you know, like you mentioned before, one of the things that Doit can, does for a customer is say, you know, let's evaluate how you're using the cloud and see if there's ways we can save you money or, you know, ways we can optimize. What are some of the considerations a client might have here around, yeah, how, to, how you know, the cost and the time of this? Like, you know, is it every API call you make? Is there, there costs associated with building out, you know, let's say a large vector database? Like, what are some of the, you know, constraints that if you wanted to do this within, you know, a hundred person startup, you might want to think about so that you can use it efficiently. It'll, you know, add to your ability to, you know, be productive, but it won't, you know, end up being, you know, a big cost center, a big time suck. Yeah, I think you'll need to decide if you want to use the already existing API, like the Palm API, or if you want to train your model yourself. This is the very first decision. What you want to go maybe the open source way, use use a Falcon 7B model. It will cost you a lot of money to train it, or sometimes less, depending how you train it. Um, but you need to invest more time. You need to build the model. You need to take care of the training infrastructure. And I would always recommend to right. go with the API way because Google invested a lot into this Palm model, and why not using it? You can also fine-tune it to your specific needs without taking care of any infrastructure. You just provide your data and click on fine-tune, wait a couple of hours, and you get your model back. So I would always recommend to go this way. And the, the cost for such infrastructure heavily depends on how many docu- documents you have, 
how many queries you need to serve per second. And also um, the, the Pile model is based on the character input and the character output. So you pay for the length of the characters you have in your prompt and also for the length of the characters you get back. And that's where there's a big difference because with OpenAI, you are built on, on the token, on the number of tokens. And with Google, you only get paid by the number of characters. And this is a, it's a great benefit because English is an easy language. And there you get less tokens. But uh, if you use a language like Italian or French, you you have a lot more tokens. So I find the pricing based on characters. Mm. And it's, it's more fair. What about in German? I know you love to combine a lot of th four ideas into a really big word. Where would you say Germany sits in terms of uh, cost per language? Yeah, there, there, there is actually a research paper who they did a lot of effort in comparing the token lengths of OpenAI for different languages. I'm not sure where, where German was. I need to need to look this up again. That's an interesting thought that maybe different languages have different costs and maybe some that are character based or something. You know, what, what's what, the most expensive language? I was going to ask, is there a particular project or use case that sort of surprised you or was there one that sort of tested the abilities of what you had built? Yeah, just a week ago, we had a, a company that did a hackathon and we did a workshop with them, um, mm -hmm. two and a half hours workshop to provide them a quick start into the hackathon. And then we guide them through the hackathon. So we make us open. They could join us and ask us any questions and for me the, the most interesting part was what what the teams actually are able to build and in, in what kind of different departments it's like hr back to the support cases the developers itself all of them use large language model and for for very different use cases in the end they decided to go with, mm. with a lot of them into into production and take this to the next step because it was yeah it's, it's a big win for the business if you can automate some of the steps yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to have you on this podcast. It's kind of, you know, serendipitous for us to be, get the chance to talk with Do It about this, because this is kind of, a, in a way, you know, a lot of what Stack Overflow does, like we have this big public forum where folks come together, contribute knowledge, try to, you know, rate it and sort of, in some ways, annotate it, right? Like, is this good knowledge? Is this up-to-date knowledge? And then, you know, we have this product Stack Overflow for Teams, which is exactly like you said, how do you get sort of knowledge to move around within an organization between different departments um, and it seems like LLMs maybe are providing sort of a new paradigm for how folks might do that, which is really interesting, right? Like their documentation used to be in a wiki here and a Confluence there and a Google Doc here and Stack Overflow Teams. Now you can feed it all into this one place and just talk to the AI and say, do you know this? Like, you know, where can I find this? Who who wrote this part? You know, stuff like that. I say that's what we also do, do it internally. We also have like Overflow Teams and we have also Confluence and we're integrating all those different document databases and um, have... One, one chatbot mm. in Slack where we can ask questions about the documents. You get the, the source back so you can directly make sure the actual information is correct. It's really useful. You don't have to search anymore. You just you get your answers back. It's, it's a completely <laughs> different way of approaching. Right. Oh, I, I uh, read somewhere that someone said this is the third UI paradigm. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. And so that's cool. You've been dogfooding this internally. You're saying like you have your own version of this that you've been using as well as helping customers build it. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So we're getting towards the end of the podcast. Let's have a little fun. You've been working in machine learning, like you said, for six years. Very smart of you, I would have to say, to transition over to this field. I'm sure you're very much in demand. Where are things headed? Like, what are you excited about? What are the next kind of turns of the wheel for what folks are doing? And, if, you know, if you were talking to a customer who was saying, like you said, all right, we had a hackathon this week. We worked with Do It. We figured out, you know, this is going to be useful for, to our business. But now we, we want to get serious. What's a one, two year you know, roadmap look like that we can invest in you know, that's going to take us in the right direction? 
from your perspective as someone who's, you know, been in the world of machine learning and also someone who's hands-on with customers, helping them, you know, build LLMs into an internal knowledge base, what's coming down the pipe? What should they be thinking about? What are you excited about? I'm really excited about um, the la latest trend into a multimodal large language models where you combine different models like an image mm. model, large image model with the text model, maybe with an audio together. And this is, I think, where it's really interesting because this is also more like we humans think. We can talk, we can hear, we can speak, we can imagine something visual. And I think that's that's the big next step. And I'm really looking forward on what we are getting getting out there out of this technology. And the rest, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Well, I have read that when you know you make a model multimodal, for example, if right, it's not just text, but now it also is image, it seems to gain a new level of reasoning capability in certain areas, as if you know that additional perspective allows it to have you know sort of a greater, more human-like, let's call it, uh, you know, form of of, of intelligence. Um, so yeah, I think that is very exciting. It hasn't really been released yet, but. OpenAI and Google have both talked about having, you know, multimodal models and even that video may be the next frontier so that that could be really exciting to uh, see what it does. So as you described it, that sort of magic, let's, let's say it's just all math and tokens in the background. Sure. But the experience we have, you know, it might add a little bit of additional magic to that experience. I think about it just a couple of months ago. OpenAI introduced their models, and it's it's there was a time before ChatGPT, and now you you can hardly work without ChatGPT. So we will see what what's coming coming next. <laughs> All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I want to shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and helped share a little knowledge with the community. Awarded just two hours ago to Victor Moros a lifeboat badge for saving a question with a great answer. How can I check whether a string is an integer in Ruby? If you've ever wondered, Victor has an answer for you and has helped over 17,000 people. So thanks, Victor, and congrats on your Lifeboat badge. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow and an AGI superfan. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always email us with questions or suggestions for the podcast. Just hit us up, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, do me a favor, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow, stackoverflow.blog. I'm a little bit of an AGI skeptic. You can find me at skeptics.stackexchange.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ryan, for having me today. You can always check out my articles on Medium. So if you are new in generative AI or large language models, uh, check it out. And also have a look into our Do It Engineering blog, where we also cover a lot of different topics, not only machine learning, also cloud, everything around cloud, um, core infrastructure and data as well. Very cool. All right. We'll be sure to link to Sasha's blog as well as the Do It blog so you can check out some of their work in the show notes. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we will talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.